Hello all, and welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. So this interview that you are about to hear is quite a bit more informal than normal. Even though I had never met my guest before this call, we have some similar acquaintances and experiences, which really made this more of a conversation than an interview. Also, my apologies for the audio. It's not terrible, but not quite as clear as I try for. I think I messed up with the setting somewhere. (laughs) I'm a Luddite. I can't help myself. Anyway, hope you enjoy this casual chat with Deborah Fratham. Wonderful. I have Deborah Fratham with me here. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. I'm so excited to talk to her finally. I've, I've heard your name over the years, as I'm sure you've heard mine. Many times. <laughs> and now we finally get a, ch- a chance to chat, which is really cool. It's under kind of uh, sad circumstances. Um, the Wabasha Street Caves is closing and we both had relationships uh, with the caves and with the Bremers, you far longer than me. Almost 23 years. Oh my goodness. When when did you start with the caves? What year? April of 1998. April of 1998. So that was just a few months after I left. That's correct. Yep. Wow. I didn't realize it was that long. Yeah. We were very close. (laughs) I'll bet. So you were kind of brought in to, to replace David Braddock, right? Well, I did, it didn't start off that way. Um, I was brought in mainly just to be a tour guide. Uh, and, uh, but David had a lot of other interests going. You know, he was a mime and several other things. And uh, little bit by little bit, I kind of took over a lot of the things he'd been doing. And he eventually decided he'd cut back and just be a tour guide. And I got to be the tour manager at that point. Oh, very cool. So for people who don't know what we're talking about, Way back a long time ago, when I was right out of college, I started a company called St. Paul Gangster Tours, where I gave sightseeing tours of 1920s and 30s gangster era St. Paul. And I had a kind of a cooperative relationship uh, with the, the Bremers, who ran mm-hmm. the Wabasha Street Caves. And eventually, I had some changes going on in my life, and they offered to buy the company from me. And I agreed, and I left in... Some, I, I can't remember exactly when in 1997, but like you just said, you came on in 1998, which right. is really neat. Yeah. And, and the, the tour that we used for for all these 23 years, I mean, you wrote it. Oh, um, you used yeah, the it, same tour for, for well, those, that entire it, time? It changed a lot over the years, um, but you, yours was always the basis. What you wrote was always the basis. Um, as you know, because you're a historian, uh, new things come to light all the time in historical research. And so things changed. Um, and we found new stories to tell and uh, new facts and some old stories and new ways to tell some old stories. Um, sure. And uh, so, but it was always, it was always based on what you originally wrote. Now we did add several other tours 
afterwards, we, we started doing a Minneapolis tour, which we called the Mill City Mobs Tour. And then we had a couple other historic tours. We did a Irish Heritage Tour, the Irish History of St. Paul. We did a Scandinavian tour. We did a, 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 a tacky tour where we went to all the tacky sites in St. Paul. So we branched out, did a lot of fun things. That's cool. I, I actually did do the Minneapolis tour. I did create that, but I don't know if they ever used my version of it or not. I, I don't but, think we did, uh, um, which, is, which is too bad. If I'd have known, I would, would have certainly used yours as a basis. But that original, that original Minneapolis tour was mostly written by David Braddock and myself, the one that we did at the caves. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I, had, I had put something together. That's when I first learned about Doc Ames. Yes. Um, when, I, when I was putting that together. Yeah. And that eventually led me to, to write that book. And you've written a book as well. And I'd love to chat with you about that in a little bit. But sure. but before we actually go there, maybe there, there might be some listeners that don't know what the Wabasha Street Caves are. Could you talk about? Yes, certainly. Yes. The, the, uh, they actually began their lives as mines. Uh, they were silica mine. Uh, back in the middle of the 1800s, they were mined out for the silica in the sand. So they're not natural caves. They were mined out for uh, silica to be used in glass manufacture very early in St. Paul's history. And then they became a mushroom farm. They were actually owned by three Frenchmen, and they were the very first commercial mushroom farm in the entire United States. Wow. And then in the early 20th century, uh, the one of the Frenchman's daughter, her name was Josephine Lehman, um, she took over mushroom growing operations. Uh, and it, they changed the name of the, of the mushroom farm at that time to Lehman Farms Mushrooms. That was her last name, her married name. And uh, Lehman Farms Mushrooms actually still exist to this day. Now, it is not still associated with the Lehman family, and it's no longer in the Wabasha Street Caves. But you can actually buy Lehman Farms products in like the condiment aisles and grocery stores to this day. But in 1920, and you know this well in your, in your historic research, of course, we got prohibition. And the caves are huge. There's actually seven big interconnected tunnels. And so Josephine Lehman and her husband, Bill, thought, well, you know, we got all this space. We could have a speakeasy. And they literally had a speakeasy in these caves. Uh, and they were, that lasted until the early part of the 30s, over 10 years when it became clear that prohibition was a failure and was going to be repealed. And then they turned it into a beautiful, fancy, high-class nightclub that was known as the Castle Royal. And I think that's how you originally became involved with the Bremers who owned it up until recently, uh, because they had returned the appearance of the, uh, of the caves to its original state from the 1930s, from when it was the Castle Royal Hotel, I mean, the Castle Royal uh, Nightclub, I'm sorry. And so it had that connection with the 1930s gangsters and the 1930s mobsters that, of course, we talk about on your famous gangster tour. Now, it, it had a several other incarnations over the years uh, after, the, after the Castle Royal Nightclub closed. Uh, it, 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 for a while, it sat empty. And then for a while, it ch cheese was aged in the back. And then it was a, a, once again, it was a nightclub in the 1970s. Of course, it was a disco. Scary, scary thing. Uh, and then it was a pizza place. And then it was a non-alcoholic teen nightclub. And it sat empty then for a couple of years until the Bremers purchased it. And they actually purchased it in the mid-90s. And this is, they owned it until, well, they still own it now. Uh, they ran it as the Wabasha Street Caves. It closed officially on the 30th of November last year. And a lot of tears were shed. Um, 
but it's for sale. I keep buying lottery tickets. <laughs> what, what, what's the asking price? The asking price is $650,000. Okay. And I honestly, I, I think that's a bargain in any other time but now. But it's very hard to look at starting a new business, you know, at, at a time like this. Um, but the property alone, it's a huge property. Um, and the sale would include the, the property itself, the contents of the nightclub, you know, all the tables and chairs and refrigerators and bar things and all that sort of thing. Um, and also the tour company, uh, which, of course, originally they bought from you back in 1997. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, when when I first introduced myself to Donna, I remember they had just purchased it and they had had heard a little bit about some of the history, but they didn't really know too much about it. So it was they were just beginning and so so was I. It seems like such a long time ago, you know? In a, in a way it seems like a long time ago, in a way it seems like yesterday. That's true. It's time is a funny thing. That's true. Yeah. When I was running the tour company, I was actually able to meet people who still had stories yes. that were connected to some of the the events, you know, the crimes that are that are covered on the tour. I actually met well the the, the Wabasha Street Caves. Um, they would they would bring in tour groups from Wisconsin, from Illinois, sometimes. Yes. And on one of those groups, they brought one in from Wisconsin, and on the tour was a gentleman. Who, whose father owned Little Bohemia. Oh, oh, fabulous. <laughs> and he, he, first of all, he told me I looked just like Babyface Nelson. And <laughs> I don't know whether that's a compliment or not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, and, and I, I can't remember. I mean, I'm looking, I think I haven't seen you in a long, long time. Uh, and I think I, when we did see each other back originally, back in, 97 or 98, I think we barely, you know, ships had passed in the night at the caves. But I, I think I can see a resemblance. Well, I'm, I'm far older than, than he was. I, when, I, when, I, when I portrayed him, I was younger than he was. And now yeah. I would never get away with it now. I've got gray hair. But, one, of, um, one of the nice things about the character I played on the gangster tour is I played Nina Clifford. And Nina Clifford was the, the high-class madam in St. Paul from 1888 to 1929, you can imagine here is a woman who runs a business an illegal business at that successfully for over 50 years but between 1888 and 1929 and she didn't die until a couple of weeks before her 78th birthday so i could still be playing her for years yet yeah for for being in that kind of business that that's <laughs> yes. a long life that's yes very much very much but anyway, yeah, the the guy who I had met, I, I, I mean, I think the family's name was Win, Winnetka. That, uh-huh. that, that sounds right. Bohemia. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember his first name, but he said that he remembered playing catch with with Lester Gillis, Babyface Nelson, while they were oh, hanging too. out there. And when Babyface Nelson would throw the ball, he would throw it at him to hurt his hand, uh-huh. and, then he would, and then he would laugh. Oh. <laughs> he was an interesting character because it, it, he was a cold-blooded killer. And if that story is true, certainly in some ways a, a mean man. And yet he was a dedicated family man. Yeah, weird. You know, a, a wife that he loved, you know. And, and so it's, it's, it's a contradiction. And one of the things that, that I've always said is, is people like this, they're complex. 
they're not they're not that simple. They're not all bad or all good. I mean, people are complicated, and uh, you know, I it, you know even an example of of of, of uh, some of the Barker gang. Um, some of these people were, were horrible, horrible people. Uh, I, I'm thinking specifically of the oldest Barker brother, who we really don't talk about much in the gangster tour because he was never in St. Paul, Herman, because he died before the gang was in St. Paul. But he, I mean, he was a horrible, nasty man. And yet his wife loved him. His wife, Carol, just adored him, loved him so much. She practically went crazy when he died. And, and so I say there must have been something redeeming about him if his wife loved him that dearly. Yes, you would you would hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and you wrote a book about the Barker Carpus gang. Yes, I did. I, I wrote it uh, with one of one of my other friends from the Wabasha Street Caves. Her name is Cynthia Schreiner Smith. Um, we decided. Um, the, I mean, you you're aware, of course, of Paul Maccabee's wonderful book, uh, John Dillinger Slept Here, about that era in St. Paul, and wonderful book. But it was written 25 years ago. And a lot of history has changed since then. A lot of a lot of new things have come to light. So we decided we'd put something together, specifically about the Barker Gang. And uh, it's we wanted to call it something fun, like they were bad men, but they love their mother. But you know publishers, so it's it's called it's called the Barker Carpus Gang in Minnesota. But what can you do? <laughs> so it just came out in September. Yeah, well, with Maccabee's book, Dillinger Slept Here, it's really hard to. To, to get too in-depth about any particular person because uh-huh. it's a, a book that sort of encompasses right. you know, a 20-year history with all kinds of characters. You yeah, know, and it, it really I'd covers all really of the major people that were in town at that time. So, Yeah. So it was fun, it was fun to go in-depth, particularly about, about Carpus. Um, Elvin Carpus, a lot of people, people who don't study the era a lot, I mean, they've heard of Dillinger, they've heard of Babyface Nelson, you know, they, they've heard of Pretty Boy Floyd, but they don't know Elvin Carpus. And yet Elvin Carpus was the fourth man to be named public enemy number one. Uh, he was certainly as bad uh, a criminal as Dillinger, you know, and certainly robbed more banks, stole more money than Dillinger did, uh, killed more people than Dillinger did. And, but he, apparently he didn't have the press. See, and, and that's, in part, that's his own doing. Uh, it's one of the things we learned uh, in, in researching him specifically is that he really wanted to fly under the radar. He didn't want the fame. He wanted to be kind of unknown and make the money, and he figured he was safer that way. And of course, he was one of the few who lived to tell the tale. Now, he lived it in prison, uh, but, but he lived until he was in his 70s and had the chance to write about it in... Um, he wrote, he wrote a couple of books. He wrote a, a book of his own life of crime, the Alvin Carpus story. And then he wrote a book about his 25 years at Alcatraz called On the Rock. Um, so he, he did live to write about it. Now, of course, one has to take what somebody like this writes with a grain of salt. Because he certainly didn't want to make himself look any worse uh, than he had to. And in fact, uh, it's quite possible that he denied being involved in a couple of murders that he probably was very much involved in, but he just didn't want to get in trouble for them after he'd finally gotten out of prison after all those years. I assume you've seen those interviews on YouTube with him. I have. Yes, I have. Uh, And in fact, one of the things we got for the book, which was really, really a lucky find on our part, um, we got in touch with Robert Livesey, 
um, who is the man who was essentially Karpis's ghostwriter for On the Rock. Uh, you know, essentially he wrote the book, but Alvin Karpis told him the stories and, and uh, Robert Livesey did, uh, did the writing. And he currently lives in Canada. And he was kind enough to give us an extensive interview. And uh, he, would, he said, he told us things that nobody knew about Karpis. <laughs> but Karpis had confided in him uh, all those years later when they were writing On the Rock. So there are some new things in our book that have not been discussed before that we got from Robert Levesey. And this, you might find this really interesting. We also have a picture in our book that has never been published anywhere before. It was actually found by the uh, St. Paul Police Department Historical Society researchers. And it's actually a picture of the interior of the Green Lantern Saloon. And there's never been a picture published of the interior of the Green Lantern Saloon before. And so it's wonderful to be able to find this picture and to be able to share it because uh, it's really, it's, it's amazing to actually see the interior of this place. Um, it just for, for anybody listening, uh, the Green Lantern Saloon was, a, was one of the places that the, the gangsters used to go to kind of check in with the, with the powers that be um, in St. Paul. And it was, uh, was run first by a man by the name of Dapper Danny Hogan and after that by a man, uh, man by the name of Harry Sawyer. And um, uh, it, it's on our gangster tour. So Eric knew all about it <laughs> because he wrote about it on our gangster tour. Yeah, that's that. It's a great photograph. I actually was uh, had to have been maybe a, two years now. I was given a tour of the St. Paul Police Department, uh-huh. their, their museum. Jeff Jeff Newberger, uh-huh. yes, heads that up, and yes. he pulled me into a room and he's like, "Take a look at this picture. I think that this is the Green Lantern Saloon." <laughs> and I took I took a look at the the photographs and my jaw dropped. I mean, it's it's so interesting because you build up these pictures in your mind, you know, about what it what it looked like. You know, exactly. Paul Paul gives a good description in his book, and Jeff was like, ah, "I wonder how I can get this verified." And so I I actually introduced him to to Paul Maccabee, and Maccabee went over and said, yeah, I think that looks like the Green Lantern Saloon, too. That's the place. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're great photographs. Yeah. And that's one of the things that is really so sad about the Wabashaw Street Caves closing as well, to get back to that for a second, is because that had been restored to its 1930s appearance. And people could go there and actually see what it looked like in the 1930s. And on Thursday nights, they had real big bands playing authentic 1930s swing music. And people would come and dress up in 1930s dresses and, and suit suits. And everybody would just have this grand time. They see this wonderful music and the atmosphere. And uh, I'm really so sorry to see that end. And so I, I just keep hoping someone will buy it and keep it going. I really do. And I, I know that, that the Bremers... I know that they're hoping they can sell it to someone who will try and honor its legacy. But, you know, they're, they're not young people anymore. And uh, it's not that the business wasn't profitable. They're, they just decided that it was time to retire. And uh, I think Steve wanted to retire more than Donna. I think Donna would probably have stayed and run the business forever and because uh, she just loved it. And uh, but Steve wanted to be able to relax a little bit more. And so they, 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 they're, they're letting it go because they're retiring. Um, and I think if, if somebody could come along and, and uh, make it work, I think it could be still be a really great business and a great asset to the city of St. Paul and 
a wonderful place for people to come and still get that little bit of flavor of the old 1930s era. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember when I met them for the first time, they, they told me that they had bought the caves basically to store their construction equipment. That's right. And That's it, exactly it was a right. surprise to them to, to learn about that history too. They did not go into this. When, when they purchased the caves, it was not with the intention to, to renovate it and restore it to, right. to the way it looked in the, in the 1930s. So it was kind of an added bonus. Yeah. And it became, it became a labor of love for them. I mean, that, you know, swing night became such a, such a labor of love for them too. As you know, Steve, who is basically, he's a construction guy, you know, um, and, but he's, he always loved to bartend on Thursday nights. And it, you know, when we, when the swing night was going on, he would be there and listening to the music and he'd 10 bar those few nights. And, and uh, it was just very, very special. And, and the, the last few years, um, you know, they, they weren't making any money on swing night because they weren't charging enough to make money. They were charging enough to pay the band. But the whole idea was they just wanted to keep it going and wanted, you know, wanted it to be there. And as I said, particularly swing night was a labor of love uh, on their part. And uh, it's a big, big part of St. Paul history that's going to be missed if someone doesn't come along who's going to honor that history. I just, I mean, I, I don't happen to be in St. Paul right now. So, but I, I, I have a feeling if I had to drive by there, I'd be, I'd be crying every time I had to drive by. Right. I, I remember someone telling me that the, the swing nights were a lot of fun, but the, the reason they had to charge admission is a lot of the dancers, they, they came to dance. They didn't necessarily come to drink, right? right? Exactly. The bar never made any money at all. Uh, it was mostly, it was mostly water. <laughs> they ended up putting water pitchers out too, so people could help themselves to water. Of course, they couldn't do that during COVID. They had to serve it. But, uh, but they, just because it, the bar made almost nothing on swing night, people did not come to drink. Uh, they came to dance and uh, it was and, and listen to the music. I'm not much of a dancer myself, but I love to go there just listen to the music. And uh, but I found that there were there were always uh, always young people who really knew how to swing dance. And uh, for every once in a while, one of those young men would ask me to dance, and I'd say ah, I don't really dance. And they'd say no, no, come ahead and dance. And I'd find that if I've got somebody who really knows what they're doing, if you've got a good lead, <laughs> you could really dance. Yeah. So, again, I haven't been there since I, I sold the business. I remember when tours were given of the caves while I was associated with the caves, there would be general stories about gangsters. But at that point, anyway, there hadn't been any actual verification that right, right. Dillinger, the Barker Carpus gang, actually frequented the Wabasha Street Caves specifically. Is that is that still the way it is? That, that's pretty much still the way it is. Um, there, ha- there are stories that people have told us. And you know as well as I do that family stories can only be trusted so far. I mean, I hate to tell you the number of people who told me on the gangster tour that, oh, their mother attended Ma Barker's trial at the Landmark Center. Ma Barker never had a trial anywhere at any time. So it's impossible for anyone to have attended Ma Barker's trial at the Landmark Center. So you get, some of them you have to take with a grain of salt. Um, So, however, we we do have someone who told us specifically that her grandmother was there and did dance with Dillinger. We had someone tell us that specifically. So again, family story. You, we, you know, you believe it or not, as you please, but we were told that. 
And then um, I don't know if you remember, uh, but in, in Paul's book, there's a relatively brief mention of a gal by the name of, of Edna Murray, the kissing bandit. And she was a, sort of a, one of the hanger honors of the Barker gang. She actually, um, and she actually was one of the people who lived a long, long time. And my co-author on the book, Cynthia, um, over the years on the gangster tour, she has been playing Edna Murray, the kissing bandit. And uh, probably about 10 years ago, we got a letter at the Wabasha Street Caves addressed to Edna Murray, the kissing bandit. <laughs> and we opened up the letter and it was from, uh, her name is Pam Tibbet. And she is actually the granddaughter of Edna Murray. Seriously. And she had heard from someone else who had been on this tour that we were doing, that, that we were doing Edna Murray, the kissing bandit. And we have actually had a chance to talk to her several times. She has actually been to Minnesota a couple of times and been on the tour. Uh, and she told us specifically that her grandmother talked about the Barker gang hanging out at the caves. So at least we know that. And it's, it's just so wonderful to you know, talk about meeting people uh, on these tours. I mean, I've met tons and tons of different people who have been involved in various things over the years. We met Leon Gleckman's nieces, and I met the granddaughter of, uh, of Henry Cummings, who was the cop who, who helped the FBI at the Lincoln Court Apartments, and um, several people. But the best one we ever found was, was the granddaughter of Edna Murray, the kissing bandit. She's just been a fountain of information. That's great. What was Edna Murray's story? What was she most known for? Well, she, they, 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 the legend is, uh, and this is the way Paul described it in his book, that she would, she would hitchhike and uh, they, they, they'd try to stop a truck that was, might be carrying bootleg whiskey or something. And then she would start kissing the driver while the gang emptied out the contents of the back of the truck. Um, however, Pam said that wasn't true. <laughs> uh, however, uh, that she was she that there was one instance where she and Volney Davis, who was part of the Barker gang, uh, had robbed a minister, and uh, he was very incensed that they would rob a minister. And she offered to compensate him by giving him a big kiss, and he he said no, he'd pass on her big kiss. But she actually she turned state's evidence against the Barker gang. She was she participated in the trials of Doc Barker. Uh, and Volney Davis at uh, uh, at uh, the Landmark Center in St. Paul, and did some prison time herself, but not a lot, um, and actually ended up marrying six more times, <laughs> and, and finally lived out the rest of her life in, in uh, California, uh, living an honest life with a succession of husbands. <laughs> well, that makes more, life more interesting, doesn't it? Having it a does. You know, it's, it's very easy. And, and again, as a historian, I'm sure you know this, it's often easy to track what happened to the men uh, because their names don't change and they were more involved in directly in, in things. The women, it's harder to find what happened to them because like in the case of Edna Murray, she married and remarried and remarried and she changed her name. And so it's very, very hard to find um, uh, some of these women. And we've been, in fact, I've been trying to track down, I would love to find out for sure what happened to Dolores Delaney, uh, the mother of Elvin Carpus's son. And uh, it's really just impossible to find out what happened to her. I, I'm, I'm not giving up. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to find her yet. <laughs> the, men, the men are easier to find what happened to them. But the ladies are, because they keep changing their names. It's tough. And now let's pause for a quick word from our sponsor. 
and we're back again. You know who I did get to meet at the the caves on one of these group tours was Edward Bremer's daughter. Yes. Cool. That Betty. was pretty neat. Yes. Yeah, she's she has passed on. Uh so but yeah, there was she's a wonderful woman. And yeah. uh, I was when it, when I when I talked about the, the two kidnappings we talked about on the gangster tour, I tend to tell the ham kidnapping try to be a little funny. You know, make I, I probably I don't mean to make light of it, but you can, you can tell it with a little humor. But the Bremer kidnapping was so much more serious. Uh, the the damage done to Edward Bremer's psyche and physically at the time he was kidnapped uh, was really far far worse than what happened to William Ham. I did actually have uh, I had William Ham's great grandson on one of my tours a couple of years ago, and uh, he was getting on the bus, and I'm handing out the receipts, you know, with everybody's name on them, and his name was Robert Ham, H A M M. So I asked him if he was related to William Ham. He said, "Oh no, no, no." So, but when I get when I get to Sweet Hollow Park, where we tell the story of William Ham's kidnapping, I usually have somebody play Mr. Ham, and I have somebody else play Charlie Fitzgerald, who was the man who kind of guided Mr. Ham into the car, shook his hand and guided him into the car when he was being kidnapped. And I have the two, I have two guys kind of play the role. And of course, this guy's name was really Ham. So I, of course I had him play Mr. Ham. And when we got back to the, uh, to the, to the caves, he was getting off the bus and he turned to me and he said, I didn't want to make you nervous, uh, but I am William Ham's grandson and uh, you got everything right. And I really appreciate it. And they tipped me a hundred dollar bill. Wow. That was the biggest tip I ever got. <laughs> well, I mean, he is, <laughs> I would I would say he's heir to the Ham's Brewery, but there isn't a Ham's Brewery anymore. There is anymore. not a Ham's Brewery anymore. Yeah. Sadly, um, the building is being used at this point. I don't know if that was, if that was happening when, when you left the Twin Cities, but it's being used. There are some things going on inside it. Um, there's a company called Flat Earth Brewing in there. There's no craft brewery. And a couple nope. other things yeah, going I've on. I've been there but... many times. Yeah, it's a it's a great place. Yeah, I'm in St. Paul all the time. So yes, yeah. So, so, so I want to ask you about the infamous bullet holes in the mantle of the fireplace. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Would Would you tell my listeners about those bullet holes? Well, the story of those bullet holes has sort of evolved over the years. Um, the um, the, the, the story goes, and, and this is a story that, that we have verified because we got it verified from the, the son of the people who owned the caves at the time. So this is not a hearsay story, but that there was, a, and I'm making it, it's a long story, I'm making it a little briefer here. There was a shootout very late at night in the fireplace room, and, uh, and, and when the, the, the one employee who was remaining in the place at the time went back to investigate after she heard the gunshots, she saw dead bodies on the floor, blood all over, but no shooter. And uh, so she called the police. But of course, as as you know very well, Eric, the police were in cahoots with the gangsters at that time. They took their time, their sweet time arriving. By the time they got there, when they went back in the back, everything had been cleaned up. And the only evidence that it happened was bullet holes in the fireplace facade. Now, when I first started working there, David Braddock used to point to this very distinct round hole in the fireplace and say that was a bullet hole. Bless his heart. 
I looked at that and I looked at that and I discovered that that was actually a hole left over from when a planter had been bolted into the wall there. (laughs) But I got to thinking a bullet hole, especially from a Tommy gun, remembering that a Tommy gun is a 45 caliber bullet. It is not, it, it doesn't fly with a lot of force. I actually, actually shot a Tommy gun a couple of years ago. I was in Las Vegas and had a chance to actually shoot a vintage Tommy gun. And it doesn't, because it's a big, heavy gun, and it has this very light charge. And a a bullet striking a fireplace facade, is, and that's concrete and stone, is not going to make a nice little round hole. And there were a couple of places where there were big bunches of chips. And we always said that's what it it was, because... The, the you know a bunch of bullets from the burst of a Tommy gun you know but that of a Tommy gun a bunch of bullets hitting the same place, and I learned that if you take an LED flashlight, and you shine it sideways across a stone, I actually learned this by investigating cemeteries. If you shine it sideways an LED across a stone, the 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 like the words on a tombstone will leap right out right out at you. So about five years ago, I started shining an LED flashlight sideways across that fireplace facade. And there is bullet damage all over the front of that facade. It's chips all over the place. And to me, that's much more interesting than one little round hole <laughs> that turned out to just be a bolt from a planter anyway. Uh, but it's it's quite clear when you look at the fireplace that that, that is damaged. I mean, this is, this is concrete. This is not little chips are not made by somebody walking by and kicking it. This is, this is something would take the force of a bullet to make these chips, and it's all over that fireplace facade. Wow. Interesting. L- let me ask you this. All of your years now as a, as a tour guide for St. Paul Gangster Tours, do you have like a, a story that's like especially memorable to you, something that happened to you that, that you'll never forget? May I share a ghost story with you? Would that be all right? Please, yes. Yes. Well, you know, as as I'm sure you're aware, the caves do have a reputation of being haunted. Um, And many people believe that it's the ghosts of those men who were shot in that shootout. But we've also heard about ghosts of waiters and people dance there. And it's just, you know, a psychic came through once and said there are 40 different ghosts that haunt the caves. And I hadn't hadn't been there too long. I think I'd been working there two or three years. And I, I came in from a gangster tour, dressed up in my outfit as Nina Clifford, the, the brothel owner, and happened to be Thursday. It was a private tour. I happened to be had come in, and, and Steve was tending bar, Steve Bremer, the owner. And I went in to say goodnight to Steve, and he offered me a glass of wine. It was swing night, so I had my glass of wine. I went back in and changed my clothes. I came back out. Steve said, you didn't drink your wine. I said, yes, I did. And he said, no, no, go back where you were sitting. And I went back and there was my wine glass and it was full of wine again. Now, I thought Steve had poured me another glass of wine, even though he denied it. But this kept happening to me. And like I said, I've been there 23 years. And you know, not you wouldn't call it often, but maybe once every eight or nine months or so, I'd be in the caves at an occasion where I would, could have a drink. And I would turn my back on an empty wine glass or I'd walk away and I'd turn back and I'd come back and the wine glass would be full again. And the bartenders always denied that they'd poured me another glass of wine. And I was there one night. I actually attended bar myself. I was there with one other employee and it was two o'clock in the morning. We'd locked the place up. Everybody had gone. My coworker took the trash out to the dumpster. We'd each had a glass of wine. After we closed up, the two empty wine glasses were sitting on the bar. I know my coworker was still outside. 
I turned to the cash register, got the money out, turned back to the bar. My wine glass was full. I was alone in that cave. That's the kind of ghost to know. I drank <laughs> the wine anyway. Yeah, better than leaving with a full glass of wine to the bathroom <laughs> and then coming back and having it gone, right? That would be worse. That would be terrible. <laughs> I think I might have told this story before, uh, maybe on a Halloween episode that I did, but this David Braddock, maybe he told you that he experienced this with me, but we were in the caves one day. We were totally by ourselves. We had just done some auditions for like a play that we had written. Tommy got in trouble. Yeah, Tommy got in trouble. Yeah, that was great fun. I played Mrs. Dice a lot of years, Eric. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting concept, right? Right. I don't know if, if you continued on with the same concept after, after I left, but basically the idea was the show would start on stage and then people get into trolleys and it would be like a, like a living history theater, right? Where people would ride in the, in the trolley. That was, it was originally, originally set up to do that way. What we did it in later years, we did it all at the caves. Um, okay. And we would do we do a, the first act, and then they'd have their salads, and we'd do the second act, and then they would do, they would have their dinner, and then we'd do the third act, and they'd have dessert, and then they'd solve the mystery. Oh, that's great! So yeah, it was kind of fun. It, it that too that too changed a little bit over the years. We put some new clues in, but and I, I gave some some of the, uh, for example, you remember your your leading actor was Agent Perfect. I don't remember any of it. His, All I remember his name was Agent the- Perfect, and I gave him a name. His name was Frank. Lee Perfect. I gave him a first name. So The only thing I remember about that entire show was one of the characters, uh, her name was Sadie Awana. Sadie Awana, yes. I was so proud of that. I did not change her name. <laughs> it was too great a name. <laughs> no, we, we actually, Eric, we were still doing that play. Oh my uh, God. We had, uh, we like I said, it had changed quite a bit over the years and because we weren't doing it. it would, and it was originally written to be done at different locations. And we had changed, I changed a little bit about, we dropped the woman pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman thing that you'd put in there originally. But, uh, uh, and we put in some different clues and some other things, but still basically the same thing, you know. And uh, so we still had Ice Pick Olsen and the, the Norwegian gangster and all that. So they were all your characters. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and we, we actually had, there was one on the books for November, but of course it canceled because because uh, of COVID. We only did it for private groups. We just did it when we'd have um, private parties in the caves. So, but people loved it. And we were still doing it 23 years later. So I'm sorry, I interrupted your story. No, no, no. I find that very interesting. So yeah, anyway, basically what had happened is we were in the caves completely by ourselves. And then all of a sudden we heard voices in the next room. A man and a woman having an argument, an intense argument. And we both heard it at the same time. And we looked at each other and we were like, what the heck? Who's in here? Our, our minds didn't immediately go to ghosts. <laughs> you know, they went to somebody's locked in here with us. Yeah, you, know, you think of and, a natural explanation first, always. Yeah. Right. So we bolted around through the place. There was nobody there. Nobody there. We checked every nook and cranny. And, and as soon as we... We, we hopped up and went into the next cave. Of course, the voices stopped, completely stopped. But that's, that's the only experience that I've ever had where I've shared it with somebody else where I can't say, I imagined that, you know, yeah, because exactly. I, I, yeah. 
I created that in my own mind because I obviously, we, we both heard it at exactly the same time. Exactly. It's so yeah. weird. Yeah. Huh. But if someone does reopen the caves, hopefully, we actually started a couple of years ago, we started doing a, a tour we called the Lost Souls Tour. And it was an hour of just the ghost stories from the caves. And we did it by candlelight. We turned all the lights way, way down, and we had electric candles in the finished part of the caves and, and real candles um, in glass in the back, so it was so it was all safe. Um, but it was mainly very, very dark and candlelit, and we literally do a whole hour of ghost stories. So I hope that if that does start up again, and I can do those tours again, that you will allow me to share your story on the Lost Souls Tour. Yes, of course. Wonderful. But honestly, Eric, one of the very first, I had just started working at the caves and uh, uh, David and uh, another gentleman were doing the ghost tour. And it was, they, it wasn't October. It was like May because I just started working there and they wanted to know if I wanted to ride along and see the ghost tour. So I rode along and after it was over, of course, David had a key. So we all were, were going in we're sitting at the bar and we're having a few drinks, sitting at the bar and talking, the three, just the three of us in this vast, dark space. <laughs> and, you know, it got to be two o'clock in the morning and I couldn't stay. I couldn't do it anymore. I said, you know what, guys, I'm going home. I, there's just something here and I'm not comfortable. <laughs> but the funny thing is, over the years, it, it almost felt like the ghosts there were, were friends. You know, you worked there 23 years. At first, it kind of creeps you out. And after a while, it's just, oh, yeah, you know, the ghosts are here. Yeah, big deal. You know, it's it's just part of the atmosphere of the place. Yeah. If there's ever a place that's haunted, it's the caves. Yes, definitely. We actually managed to do some ghost tours this October. We uh, we, we did the, the ghostly bus tour. And bit, but because, of course, because of COVID, there were no parties in the cave. So we actually did a half an hour in the cave in the back part and told a, told a couple of ghost stories back there. And we did the half an hour of the bus tours. And we had a, had a wonderful time on that this year. And it was... A, it was a nice way to say goodbye because that was, and I did, and I did get one last gangster tour in in October as well. I was able to say okay because of course, and the, when everything closed down for COVID in the spring, none of us knew that that was our last tour. You know when we did it. You know when we yeah. do our last tours that we did in March, we didn't know those were going to be our last tours, and right. uh, so it was nice to be able to hey. I got one more in. I got to do one more gangster tour. Yeah. So I, I actually did two. I did one in September and one in October. Got to say goodbye. Oh, and I, I have to tell you, uh, all of us who, who do these tours, we're grateful to you for getting them started because they've just become such a huge part of our lives. And, and um, tour guides never leave. I was there 23 years. Uh, my friend Cynthia, co-author of the book, she was there 22 um, there's a guy playing Babyface Nelson who, like you, is far too old to be Babyface Nelson now, who's been there like 17 years. There's a guy playing Dillinger who's been there 14 years. Uh, then there's our new girl. She plays Babe Delaney. She's only been there 10 years. <laughs> you know, we just love <laughs> That's this. That's the new girl, huh? That's the new girl, yeah. And we just love it so much. And it it's it's such a sad, such a sad thing to say goodbye to it. And I know, because I, I, and I did ask Donna about speaking to you. and. She said, I can't, I'll cry. So, and Donna's oh, a little shy. She's, she's nice. Donna's shy. She doesn't, she would prefer to have, have the, us characters 
do the talking for her. Not a problem. Yeah. Did you ever have like a really weird experience giving a tour? Something really strange or out of the ordinary happened that upset the routes a little bit? Anything like that? You know, not not on the gangster tour. Um, I had a couple of ghost tours where I had to, I literally had to say, no, I, you're too drunk. You're getting off this bus right now. <laughs> but uh, the gangster tour, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just so well put together and it flows so beautifully that I think people are just, people just get caught up in it. And, and I mean, I've had a couple of times the bus quit working and they'd have to go get us another bus, but nothing that was, uh, nothing that was really a bad thing on the gangster tour, but, and, uh, it's just, a it's an easy tour to do. Uh, and again, you get the credit, kiddo, <laughs> um, because it's just put together so well. And, it, and, you know, yes, it has changed over the years and yes, there are things added on, but, uh, just it. And it's, uh, we did have a real interesting experience once on the ghost tour. Uh, it wasn't me. It was actually, um, was actually Cynthia, who plays Edna Murray, the Kissing Bandit. She's uh, she's Nurse Hatchet on the Ghost Tours. A, a situation they were they were they had been in Calvary Cemetery, and she we were the only reason we were allowed to go into Calvary Cemetery on these tours was because we had certain things we had to do. And number one, we were not allowed to tell ghost stories in the cemetery because it's a Catholic cemetery, and the Catholic Church felt that that was inappropriate. But we could tell stories about it afterwards. But while we're in the cemetery, we're just supposed to talk about how beautiful the cemetery was. So, so but this one woman insisted on talking about ghosts in the cemetery. And they get back on the bus and everything goes wrong. It's, it suddenly starts pouring rain. The windshield wipers on the bus won't work. They try to drive away. The lights on the bus stop working. One of the women on the bus starts complaining that she's having chest pain and she, they th- she thinks she's having a heart attack. No cell phone anywhere on the bus will work to call 911. They tried like five different phones. Finally, Cynthia gets off the bus in the pouring rain, walks several blocks away, gets, gets, gets her cell phone, gets, gets somebody. They come and get the woman. They take her away. And as soon as she's off the bus, everything starts to work again. The windshield wipers, the lights, everything's fine. So, so they decided they had a haunted bus that night. Huh. Now, cemeteries uh, are something that fascinates me. I, I, uh, I find them to be an interesting source of history as well as interesting stories. Did you talk about the Anne Bolansky case? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, we did. Do you, have you done a, have you done a, 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 a podcast about Anne? I have haven't, about- but I wrote, I wrote uh, early on, besides the, the, the St. Paul gangster tour and the Minneapolis gangster tour, I also wrote Oh, I can't even remember what I called it, but a ghost tour. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I did ghost tours early on too. And one of the stops was in St. Paul to talk about Anne Bolansky. Right. But that's a, her, her it's a wonderful story. Yeah. She, she, uh, only woman, only woman ever executed in the state of Minnesota, probably not guilty of murder. Probably husband wasn't even actually murdered. Um, not much proof other than she did buy some arsenic, but there was certainly no proof that, she actually gave it to him. No proof that he actually died of arsenic poisoning. You know, it's a very interesting story. But um, and there is a ghost story about her as well, um, because she uh, you're, you're probably aware she converted to Catholicism right before she was hung, and because she was because she converted to Catholicism, 
she could not be denied burial in the sacred ground of Calvary Cemetery. So they did bury her there. However, they didn't put up a headstone because they didn't want anybody to know that this supposed murderer was buried in their beautiful cemetery. And so there was no headstone. And for years, people would be in the cemetery at dusk and they would see a woman in black uh, as if she was on her way to an execution. And she was walking along, staring at the ground as if she was searching for something. In the 1950s, they finally, 1950s, finally, they put up a headstone. It all says it's Anne Bolansky, no details, nothing else. And since then, the woman in black has not been seen in Calvary Cemetery. Interesting. I, I actually got chased out of the St. Paul Hotel once by the concierge. Clinton was staying. He was the president. Uh-huh. He was staying at the St. Paul Hotel. And, or he was about to stay there. And there were secret service <laughs> in the lobby. And I here I march out, you know, of my car with, with a Thompson submachine gun. Of course, you know? of course. <laughs> and the concierge came bolting out of the, get out of here. Get out of here right now. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. not going to be good for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> we used to be we used to be a lot less careful with them uh, when we uh, when 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 you know, before nine eleven. I mean, place people would request to be kidnapped. You know, you'd go into their their hotel or whatever with the guns, and you'd kidnap them and take them on a bus and all that stuff. After nine eleven, you didn't dare do that. You had to be a lot more careful. Yeah. So we began to be much more careful with the. Uh, the only, well, if somebody wanted to be kidnapped, we had a couple of violin cases. So we'd, we'd take the violin cases in and we'd say, don't make me open up the violin case. You wouldn't like the music I'd be playing. But that's, that's, the, that's the worst threat we could do. Which is a gangster myth because a Thompson submachine gun does not fit into does a not violin fit case. In a violin case. You are absolutely correct. But it was, it was, it was handy. It was an easy way. It was an easy way to get around the. You can't brandish guns the way you used to, but you know, I it carried a Thompson. By the in the last few years, we had like three of them, um, and of course they're they're replicas. They're not actual Tommy guns, and they're not they're not functional by any means, and they won't give me ammo. But but I so I so I carried this doggone thing on these tours for over twenty years. And I am, and I honestly, I am not a gun person. I, I don't know anything about guns and, you know, don't particularly like them, but, um, but so, but we were, we were in Las Vegas, like I said, it was two years ago and my husband finds this firing range and uh, that had a, and it was, an, it's, it was seriously, it was a 1933 vintage Thompson and uh, actually got to fire the darn thing. And uh, it just, it's an amazing I discovered a couple of things. You can actually fire one bullet. If you squeeze real careful, you can fire one bullet, but you can't fire two. The minute you squeeze any harder than that one quick squeeze, you get at least six bullets. It's either one or <laughs> So, and the gun has no kick. Um, you know, like a hunting rifle would, would you know, kick you back in the shoulder. And again, the guy in the firing range is because it's such a heavy weapon in and of itself, and a forty-five caliber is a light charge. So you're not, that's why you're not getting a kickback from the gun. But, and, and they're and, they're notoriously difficult to control as well. Yes, 
in fact, the, you know, the, I think the guy took one look at me and realized I was not exactly a sharpshooter. And he, he, the target he pulled out for me to shoot at was actually a female zombie, a picture of a female zombie. And she had a little shopping bag and she had a little zombie dog in her purse. And he said, you want to kill her? Aim for her ankles. And so I aimed for her ankles and I shot her in the head. <sighs> so, because it's very difficult to control. It has this natural, it wants to move up. So shooting low. In fact, Dillinger claimed that, that the only reason that he ever killed anybody, the one person that he killed, he claimed the only reason that he killed him is he wasn't, he wasn't aiming to kill him. He was only shooting. He was going to shoot at his legs and just stop him. But because the gun had such a rise and the gun was so difficult to control, he ended up shooting him in the, in the heart. And that he regretted that, that he killed that one person. Hmm. Whereas Elvin Carpus would not have regretted killing anybody if they got in his way. Yeah. Um, going back again to those to those YouTube videos of, of his interview, my gosh, he lives up to his name creepy. Yeah. Yes. Just just kind of his his countenance, the way he the way yeah. he looked. He didn't show any remorse at all for no. anything yeah. that his, his gang had been involved in. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And he he just is this very cold. And when you when you read his book, um, if you read the Alvin Carpus story, well, you probably have, but it, it it is still available. By the way, it's it's out of print. If people do want to read it, it's out of print. But you can get copies of it if you go to uh, if you go to Barnes and Noble or to Amazon. You know, used and rare, you can get copies of it. But to read it, I mean, he just comes across as so cold. Just you know, oh yeah, well this guy died. Yeah, big deal. You know, and uh, he he he. He didn't like to be called a, a, a thug. Jagger Hoover called him a thug, and he hated that. He's not a thief. I'm a businessman. I, I rob banks for a living, and I'm good at it. <laughs> you know, don't get in my way, and I won't kill you. Get in my way, that's your problem. Right. Well, this has been so much fun um, talking to you about this. So tell us the name of your book again. The book is called The Carpus Barker Gang in Minnesota. I love the way you flipped that around because they've always been known as the Barker Carpus Gang, but you rightly put Carpus's name first. That's correct. We specifically put Carpus. In fact, when our we were first dealing with the publisher, he he when he first sent the contract out, the the contract came as Barker Carpus. I said, nope, other way around. It is the Carpus Barker Gang in Minnesota. So, because he was the he was the brains behind the he gang. was the brains for sure. I mean, uh, uh. Doc was Doc was not bright. Uh, Freddie wasn't stupid, but Freddie was kind of a hothead. But the real brains was Carpus, and Doc was Doc was not bright at all. Um, you know, it, it, in fact, he had a reputation of being, you know, quite dumb. But uh, I, I don't think he was as stupid as his reputation. Um, in fact, I talk about that a little bit in the book. But he wasn't quite as stupid as people wanted to make him out to be. But uh, and and Freddie wasn't stupid. Freddie was bright, but the real brains, the real organizer, real planner was definitely Elvin Carpus. I'm going to get a copy of that right away. Super. Well, maybe we can meet in St. Paul sometime and I'll give you an autograph. That would be excellent. And then you can autograph my copy of your book. Yes. That sounds perfect. <laughs> That's a good exchange. 
Well, this has been so much fun talking to you. I mean, again, I've heard your name over the years here and there. I think my dad ran into you at one point a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah, at some function. Yep, so, some function. I don't remember where, but I remember I remember meeting him, yes. It's it's great that we were able to talk. It's it's sad under these these circumstances, the, the caves closing. It's really, really a shame. And hopefully, as you've said, somebody will come and scoop them up and and continue to if share they do, the history. If they do, they can have me. I I will be there to help them run it, I promise. <laughs> Just I'll be there. Oh, that's perfect. So anyone listening who has, you know, 650,000, did, did you say? 650,000, 650, yep. Yep. That's burning a hole in their pocket and, and they want to own a piece of St. Paul history. There's a, there's a willing tour guide that, that comes with the package. Well, well thanks again, Deborah. This well, has been thank awesome. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. Again, I have been speaking to Deborah Fretham. She, along with Cynthia Schreiner-Smith, are co-authors of Elvin Carpus and the Barker Gang in Minnesota. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time.